That last song that we sang was actually a really good one uh, for the theme tonight. The theme tonight really is fixing your eyes on Jesus. And if you remember, if you've been here with us, um, the context of the letter to the Hebrews, it was written to Jewish Christians in Rome when persecution has begun. They haven't yet, the letter says later, we haven't got to this, this section yet, but the letter does say later, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, yet you have cheerfully um, endured the confiscation of your property. So they've begun, begun to suffer some serious persecution, and it's obvious and clear that it's only going to get worse. And so this really is a letter about how do we live in the midst of trials and particularly hostility, even physical danger. And what's interesting is what the writer focuses on here in chapter 3. Now, at the end of chapter 2, he talked about how what Jesus did in his death secured our way to a relationship with God that is secure. And in doing that, he basically set us free from our fear of death because he broke the power of Satan who held us in bondage by our fear of death, because apart from Jesus dealing with our sin, death is not something we want. Because as it says later in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed for mankind once to die and then to face judgment. Hebrews is a very serious letter, as you might expect, because it's written to people who this religion stuff is not just playing around. This is a matter of life and death, and it's good for us to be reminded of the actual conditions in which we find ourselves, right? Now, in chapter 3, his big encouragement to them in the midst of this suffering and persecution is what? To cast their eyes, to fix their eyes on Jesus so that they won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and particularly the self-righteousness that feels justified in demanding things of God. And, 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 and then at the end of the, the chapter, it talks about how we need each other's help to do this. So here, here's the point. What's interesting is, and Joy mentioned that I'm going to do this study on defeater beliefs. Defeater beliefs are beliefs that you have which you may not have actually examined or been reasoned into. They tend to be in the cultural air that you breathe. So you tend to kind of not even so much be aware of them, but they're beliefs that if you hold these beliefs, it will render other truth claims not even worth considering. So it'd be like if I told you that this afternoon, I looked out my backyard and I saw a fire-breathing dragon. I really did. It doesn't matter how much I proclaim that, there's not a person here that, that, that's going to ask me questions like, well, are you sure? How big was it? What did it look like? Where did it go? My truth claim is rendered null and void and not even worth spending any time considering because you have a defeater belief, and in this case, I, I think a pretty well-grounded one, that, that, that we don't have fire-breathing dragons, Okay. But there are all kinds of defeater beliefs at work. And what's interesting is 
The defeater beliefs in one culture often contradict the defeater beliefs in another culture, but we tend to think of them as common sense. So that's what we're going to do in that study. But it also applies to what we're looking at tonight. Because the way people think about suffering today is very different than the way people thought about it even a hundred years ago. Not just in the Christian church, but in our culture in general. It, it, I think it's without dispute that suffering drives people away from God in ways that it never has before in history. Now, C.S. Lewis attempted to explain some of this really like 50, 60 years ago in an essay he wrote called God in the Dock. And what he says is this remarkable thing has happened where all of human history, really every culture, this isn't just the Judeo-Christian tradition, in all of human culture, most human beings felt that they had to answer to the gods for how they had lived their life. Now, whether that's right or not, that was just an assumption everybody had. But about in the last century, things shifted to where now most people feel God is the one who asked to answer us for how he's ruling his world. And that changes the way you deal with suffering. And in some ways, when you come to a letter like the letter to the Hebrews, a lot of it will seem just like, like it's coming from Mars. Because, for instance, in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, God disciplines those he loves as true children. One of the marks that you're a true child of God is that he disciplines you. And so most Christians have thought, how can we endure and be patient and even glorify God by bearing suffering for his sake? These days... That's not usually the way people think about suffering. And so rather than suffering taking us deeper into the mystery of who is a God like this who not only would allow his children to suffer, but would himself taste suffering beyond what we've experienced, who is a God like that? It should drive us to worship. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said once that whenever I find a mystery in the Bible, I consider that God has set a little altar there for me to kneel and worship, that the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. But so often we come to mysteries like this one and we're like, yeah, I don't know about this. What right does he? In other words, anytime God does something that doesn't fit into the way we think he should rule the world, we tend to kind of judge him rather than saying, praise be to you, God. <laughs> you are beyond our understanding. Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are higher than our ways. That, you understand there's a real difference in how we approach this topic. And what I want to suggest to you, and this is what the, the chapter three basically is getting at, is that trials are not our biggest problem. And that's why chapter three is so remarkable, because these people are about to go through these intense trials, and the writer Hebrews saying, watch out lest you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. He doesn't say, boy, I'm going to pray for you that you'll be able to endure this trial. Not that that's a bad thing to do, but he really says, watch out. And, and what he tells them to watch out about, I think, 
is very instructive for us because it says to us that our greatest danger is not the trials, it's the hardness of heart and the deceitfulness of sin. And we need Jesus to help us and we need each other to help us. So if you will, I'm gonna read chapter three of Hebrews and then we'll dig into this. Therefore, holy brethren, that's a gender neutral term, by the way, where, where it's translated brothers in the NIV. Therefore, brethren, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brethren, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As it just has been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now, this is not a warm, fuzzy chapter, is it? But as I said, we're dealing with serious things here. Serious things here. And the writer is calling them to remember how God dealt with the people in Israel. And one of the most tragic things, they knew God, they were with God, they saw God at work, and yet at the end of the day, he said, they know not his ways. We're going to pray that God would help us as we go through this passage because we don't want to be those that have been around the work of God and yet don't know his ways. That would be tragic. Lord, we do pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would see more of who you are and, and understand more of what it means that we have Jesus, the apostle and high priest the one who has been made like us in every way, yet without sin, the one who can um, empathize with us, who has taken on human flesh like us, all the stuff that we talked about last week. Lord, we thank you for Jesus.
because there is truly no hope without him. Pray we send your spirit, send your spirit to help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis wrote this in, in one of his more famous books, The Problem of Pain. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil, it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Now, C.S. Lewis is on to what the writer of Hebrews is on to. The, the biggest danger is not trials. It is a heart that turns away from the living God. And one of the reasons trials are so valuable and why our pain is too good to waste is it is so difficult to actually figure out what's going on in our hearts. And, and, and I feel for a lot of people who, who feel like they just need to figure out what they really feel in the deepest part of their heart, and that's how they'll know what's true. Because as the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond understanding who can know it. So pain is one of the things, trials are one of the things God can use to graciously help us see the direction of our hearts what we really trust, where we really put our hope. Trials expose our heart's direction. And, and that's why down in verse 7, he reminds them of this passage from the Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. Now, what's interesting is the time of testing in the desert was a time when God said, I want you to understand what's in your heart. But they, Israel, was the ones who constantly put God to the test. But God was graciously saying, I want you to understand that your biggest problem was not slavery in Egypt. It's rebellion against me in your heart. So for 40 years, Israel wandered in the desert. Why? Well, Deuteronomy 8, God tells them. And this is at the end of the wandering. This is like Moses' last sermon, Deuteronomy. And he says, I led you through the desert for 40 years, basically giving you food that you had never heard of, manna, which literally means, what is it? That's literally what it means in Hebrew. Manna is, what is it? They didn't know what it was. But, but God gave it to them. I, I kept your shoes from wearing out, God says. Why did I do this? So that you would learn that man does not depend on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, I want to bring you back into that relationship we had in the garden, one of mutual love and trust. You think that I brought you out here to kill you. It breaks God's heart to say that and to see that in his people. And he says, I'm not content to have a relationship where you think I want to kill you. 
I need you to understand who I am. And so I am going to lead you, show you your heart, and show you my love in response to your heart. You know, like I say, anytime you read in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you read like Deuteronomy chapter 10, you know, the story should end there. Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy, every chapter in the Bible has plenty of reasons for God to say, I'm just done with these faithless um, people who are always complaining and criticizing after all I've done for them. But he doesn't, he continues to pursue them over and over and over again. You know, our heart never stands still. It's always moving towards something, either towards God or away from God. And that's a question that I would hope that you would, from time to time, ponder. Where is my heart going these days? And trials, are, again, are one of those times when you can kind of see, what do you look to for hope? Well, this has happened. This is disappointing. But at least, and then what, what fills in the blank there? has a lot to do with exposing your heart. Unbelief is a great enemy, okay? But unbelief in God is always belief in something else. I heard Tim Keller say this once, you can't doubt everything all at once. You have to stand somewhere to doubt. And so when we're standing there saying to God, you need to answer for the way you've ruled this world, you are standing on something. You're standing on something. What do we think is more trustworthy than God's character? And in verse 9, it talks here about how your fathers tested and tried me. This is what God says. And I think the best way to describe their heart was demandingness. Trials have a way of exposing the demandingness of our hearts. There's a, a, a New Testament uh, commentator, Anglican priest, who's passed away now, but he wrote this about the Israelites in the desert, talking about this passage. He said, instead of moving forward with a calm confidence in the power and goodness of God, Israel put him to the test, blind to the fact that it was they, not God, who were being tested. They set themselves up as judges over God, and refused to put their trust in him unless he performed what they demanded. And guys, that's us. That's our heart so much of the time. We think God needs to perform for us to earn our trust. But this demandingness is deceitful. We don't see it, I think, so much of the time. Often our demandingness seems so reasonable to us because in our heart of hearts, we often believe that God owes us more than he has given us. I had a friend from college who I was chatting with, this is maybe 10, 20 years ago. So it was 10 or 20 years after college because I've been out of college a while. But we were chatting and he was talking about just an ongoing kind of longing that was unfulfilled in his life. And he said, is it really too much to ask God to give me this, and I was like, well, no, it's not. But I don't think you're actually asking. You're demanding, and that's a different thing. Now, this is hard stuff, because there's a lot of things that we think we deserve, but it, the way I think about it sometimes is, do we think of God as the divine physician, 
or the divine pharmacist. And there's a big difference because when we treat God as the divine, divine pharmacist, what we're basically saying is, God, I know what I need. Let me write the script. Your job is to fill it. And if you don't fill it the way I want, well, then we got a problem. But what God says is, no, I know you think you need that. But there's actually a much more serious thing going on. And I want to get to the heart of that. And it might take a little incision with this scalpel here and a little cut here and there. Do you see the difference? God is the divine healer. He's not the pharmacist. He's not God on a leash. Demanding this reveals a heart that wants what God can do more than a heart that wants God himself. And that's why I say, like in verse, verse 10, when God says, their hearts were always going astray, they've not known my ways. How tragic. How tragic that they saw what God did for 40 years, but at the end of it, God says they didn't know his ways. They just got mad when he didn't perform. And remember, God gave them lots of demonstrations. But the greatest demonstration is not all the stuff he did in the desert with Israel and all the miraculously feeding and giving them water and all these different things, battles and all that stuff. No, the greatest demonstration, and this is where our, our text goes next, is Jesus. As many things as God does that confuse the heck out of us, and there are a lot of them. And if you don't think being a Christian means you're confused much of the time, well, let me tell you, you are, <laughs> right? Because God is always doing things to make us more like his son. And sometimes those things go really contrary to the things that we think we want and need. Well, Jesus is the way that we can know that this perplexing God can be trusted. And that's why I think the writer directs us there. The ultimate, the ultimate evidence that we have that God is good is that he would send his own son for us. And, and this is what's remarkable. Again, like the demandingness, God says, okay, you, you really have this need to understand who I am. Let me send Jesus. His love can melt your heart. The only thing that will actually change a demanding heart is to realize that we have so much more than we deserved. And so who is Jesus? Well, notice how the writer opens up a particular thing. So that's why I love that, that hymn, right? Jesus, our prophet, brother, husband, brother, friend, all those things, you know, I love that. That's like teaching us meditation, which I'm gonna talk about here in just a second. Meditation, thinking the truth in and then thinking it out. You know that, that hymn, uh, is how sweet the name Jesus sounds, is based on one verse from scripture. John Newton wrote that hymn. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. So I know you at least know one of his, his hymns. He wrote a lot of other ones, good ones too, like Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Um, anyway, but that one is based on Song of Solomon 1.3. Do you know what Song of Solomon 1.3 says? It says, thy name is like ointment. Now, I don't know if you've done your quiet time in Song of Solomon 1-3 in a while. <laughs> Thy name is ointment. Okay, let me pray about that. Uh, 
Do you, understand, do you see what, like John Newton actually is taking us by the hand in that hymn and teaching us how to meditate. Because he understands that the name of God is not, is not just some arbitrary label. It's who he is and what he's done. That, that's, names in the Bible are always more significant. And ointment is both an anointing thing, but it's also a healing thing in the biblical culture. So he begins to just kind of meditate on all the ways that the, that the name of God is seen preeminently in Jesus, the one who ultimately reveals to us who God is, what he's like, and then he, we're going to meditate on what he's done, and we're ultimately going to meditate on who he is, and we can, we can you know, take nourishment and life from every particular name and title and thing that he's done. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. He, he, he talks about Jesus. Look at verse 1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And then this is an, actually a unique description of Jesus. Nowhere else in the entire Bible is Jesus called the apostle. And you might think, well, I thought there were 12 apostles. Jesus isn't the apostle. He's Jesus. And then you got the 12 apostles. What does that mean? Well, apostle means sent one. And so what's being focused on here is Jesus is the ultimate sent one. And if you think about being sent, you might think, well, so often being sent is like being sent somewhere you don't want to go. There are sometimes you get sent on a journey or on a trip and you're like excited about it. But a lot of times being sent is like, oh, I need to obey and I need to do this thing. Jesus is the ultimate one who said it is my meat and drink to do the will of my Father, not my will. And you saw it, the closer he got to the cross, it got more and more difficult for him to say that. Till finally, it said in the Garden of Gethsemane, his sweat was like coming off like great drops of blood. This picture of anguish. Father, if there be any other way, I don't want to go to the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So when you think about Jesus, think about this one who not only died for us, but he persevered in his commitment to die for us. He had so many opportunities to turn away. I mean, it certainly began right at the beginning of his ministry. As soon as he's baptized with the Holy Spirit, immediately it says, Satan Sorry, immediately, this is important, don't get this wrong. Immediately, the Holy Spirit drove him into the desert to be tempted by Satan, which may surprise a lot of you when you think about the role of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't seem like what the Holy Spirit would do, but that's what he does. And Satan continually tempts him to not go to the cross. You can have glory without suffering, Jesus, if you just take this path instead. That's why later, when Peter tells him, you don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. Do you remember what he says? Get behind me, Satan. Because he recognized it's the same temptation. I can have glory without a cross. And he was tempted by it. He was sore tempted by it. Okay? But he never turned away. The Gospel of Luke uses this wonderful phrase. It says that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. It comes over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. The only way people are like kind of watching, what's he doing? What's, what's, what's motivating him? He is going to the cross. He is not turning away from it. He is bringing it on, saying, death, let's go. Let's rumble, right? 
how much do you think the people getting this letter need to know that? How much do you need to know that? See, I think one of the chief difficulties when we're going through suffering is to think God doesn't care or to think that God is distant or God is not touched by the same kinds of sufferings that we ourselves go through. I don't understand the suffering that you have been through or will go through, but I know that God is not distant from pain that he took it on himself and he didn't have to. So he's the apostle. He's also our high priest. Chapter two talked about this, right? And this is gonna come up again in Hebrews, but let me just say this for right now. A high priest is one who can sympathize with us. It says that Jesus had to be made like us so that he could taste our infirmities, so that he could understand our weakness and our frailty, and ultimately so that he could die. He needed to become weak. And the close connection that Hebrews draws between Jesus, our priest, and his people is remarkable, right? And here's what I want to say to you. Now, this is a deep thought, so hang with me here. There is a doorway from your suffering to understanding the love of Jesus in a way that you may not have thought about before. Think, think, about, think about it. The pain of loneliness. I know the pain of loneliness is intense. I mean, you guys went through COVID, right? It, it, I mean, loneliness is just epidemic. And some of us, we would do anything to relieve the pain of loneliness. And here's, here's what you need to understand. Jesus experienced loneliness beyond what you can even imagine. On, on, the, on the night in which he was betrayed, you know, he, he, he takes his disciples with him. He says, just stay awake with me. Just be with me here in my moment of need as I pray, and they kept falling asleep. His friends all deserted him. Loneliness, right? Here's what I want you to understand. We, we are so tempted to do things that we really shouldn't do to, to sort of end the ache of our loneliness. Jesus had every opportunity to not taste that kind of loneliness, but he did it anyway. And so rather than you sitting in your loneliness feeling like God doesn't care, and if I'm still lonely, how can God love me? What I want you to understand is your loneliness, that ache that you feel is actually a doorway into understanding what Jesus felt in an even more intense way because he wouldn't back down. Do you understand? He had the opportunity to not taste the things that you would do anything to avoid. And he said, no, I would rather die than live without them. That is what you need to use. In the, rather than your trial being the thing that keeps you wondering whether God loves you, it actually gives you a taste, just a taste of what Jesus' love felt like for him. What Jesus' love felt like for him was having nowhere to lay his head, having his friends abandon him, and having one of his friends betray him with a kiss. That's what Jesus' love felt like. And he took it, and he didn't back down, right? So let all of those 
things be doorways, right? But what does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus? I love this uh, line from Eugene Peterson. He is the guy who did the message. And I'm, I'm trying to rehabilitate Eugene Peterson for you, I guess. Um, now, he had this great line where he talked about how we should read the Bible. He said, reading the word, we are to read the word with a poet's attentiveness to words and a lover's responsiveness to words. We're to read the Bible with a poet's attentiveness to words and a lover's, attentive, and a lover's responsiveness to words. There needs to be an intentional focusing of our attention upon Jesus as he is revealed in his word. Ponder who he is and what he's done in specific ways to do battle with your unbelief and temptation to not lose heart. In every struggle and fear you have, there is an answering grace in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus has an answer for every, every broken place that we are, have. There's something to focus. You're like, well, Jesus never understood what it was like to be publicly humiliated like I was. Yes, he did. And he didn't have to. So that's the key. Yes, he did. And he didn't have to. The only reason that he was publicly humiliated was because of his love for his people, right? Now you never outgrow the importance of looking at Jesus by faith. But I think sometimes what happens, and I'm not gonna read this whole quote, but I I would encourage you to read it later. This is one of my favorite quotes from a guy who lived back in the 1700s, a guy named William Romaine, like Romaine Lettuce. He was an Anglican priest, an English um, Anglican priest. And he was writing a letter to a friend of his who was very discouraged. And, and the guy was discouraged basically because he, you know, as, as, as Romaine begins to, to talk with him, he says, the problem is you're not looking at Jesus, you're looking at your faith. Uh, as I've sometimes used this illustration. The quickest way to fall out of love is to work on your relationship rather than focusing on the other person. Because the more you look at your relationship, you'll see all kinds of flaws and all kinds of problems. And if you're looking at your faith, you will see all kinds of problems. But you're not to look at your faith, you're to look at Jesus. And so he tells his friends, basically, you've made a Jesus out of your faith. You want your faith to comfort you. But if your faith could talk to you, your faith would say, look at Jesus. Like, I've got no comfort to give. Like, I I, I really am so weak and (laughs) full of uh, unbelief. But Jesus is the one. Look at Jesus. Look who he is. Look at what he's done, right? But God has given us something even more than Jesus. I know that may seem almost like scandalous to say, but it's in the Bible. He's given us his church, his people, right? He says, holy brethren who share in the heavenly colony. You see verse one? He's talking to the church. He's talking to a community. And he tells them corporately, you all, focus your thoughts on Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the one who's greater than Moses. He's the apostle. He's the high priest. And God knows we need all the help we can get. There are no Lone Ranger Christians, you know, at least not healthy ones. And pastors aren't the only people that God has given to help us, though the book of Ephesians talks about the importance of pastors and teachers and all these different people that God has given to his church, right? But he wants everybody, this is a corporate call, fix your thoughts 
on Jesus, and then look at what it says um, down here at verse 13. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let me explain to you what encouragement is, because encouragement is very different than flattery. I know a lot of y'all are here because of the music business, and I will just tell you the music business runs on flattery. It is the fuel it runs on. But Proverbs says that flattery is a snare. It's always trying to, flattery is always trying to catch you and make you dependent upon it. Encouragement is speaking gospel truth to the place of fear. Every Christian you know struggles at some point to believe that God is as good or as powerful as he is. And, and where you tend to find it difficult to believe he's as good and as powerful as he is has a lot to do with your story and the way you've been sinned against. It just does. And people that know you, that know your story, can get in and speak and say, I know this is hard, but Jesus is the high priest. And you need to understand that. Encourage one another daily. Do you do that in your relationships? I don't mean flatter like, oh, you're awesome. I mean, I know you're putting your hope in this thing and it's disappointed you once again, but you don't need that. You already have Jesus. What you're trying to get from this, you already have. When you think that Jesus is not enough, let me remind you of who he is and what he's done. And the more you know somebody, the more you know their story, the more you'll be able to actually encourage them in particular ways. I heard Tim Keller say one time that if you pull your idols up by the roots, you'll find your, fleer, your fears clinging to them. And encouragement says, I know why this is so fearful to you. I know why you're so afraid in this way. And while you grasp after all these other things that seem more reliable and more safe and secure than God, but let me remind you of who he is. That's what we had in that call to worship, right? You know, the two great big commands in the Bible that happen over and over and over again, you know what they are? Remember and rejoice. You know why? Because we forget all the time. It's important to remember who God is and what he's done, but it's not enough just to remember it cognitively. Rejoicing actually connects the dots where you begin to actually have your heart warmed as you confess and pray and praise God for who he is and what he's done. That's why we like to sing all these old hymns that focus us on what God has done and who he is. Because remember and rejoice is the key to not being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let's pray together.